Psalm 119. Thank you for the testimonies this evening. It's encouraging to hear what the Lord is doing and just refreshing transparency about what is going on in your heart. I trust the Lord will use his word tonight to strengthen us, to encourage us. God's word is light and uh, gives us light for the way. Some time ago, we began Psalm 119, and we have taken uh, some breaks uh, due to different circumstances and schedules related to our midweek services and uh, Sunday evening services, and whether I was gone or Pastor John was gone, uh, we have certainly considered other things at other times, and then we have also had for the last couple of weeks, we're thankful to have had our missionaries with us, and we're glad they're with us tonight, and uh, I hope you know we we love you all, and uh, we consider it a privilege to be able to fellowship with you and uh, to know you better. Thank you for coming and spending some time with us, and uh, as much as you can, and Brother Chris, I think you win the record here, but thankfully Kings came back tonight. Uh, they're staying for a little while in the Columbus area before they head on to New York City as the next stop, so let's be in prayer for them. Um, so we're, we're looking at, we have been looking at Psalm 119 and the stanza that we'll be looking at tonight is from verse 97 down through 104 to orient us again to the Psalm. This is a Psalm where David, as he writes it in the original language, Hebrew is beginning Every verse in the stanzas with the same letter. So if you see those little letters over the top or those words that you may not understand, this is the Hebrew alphabet. And we are on, in verse 97, the equivalent of our letter M. So this is Mame. So if you were to look at it in the original language, you would see the same letter going through for these verses from 97 down through 104. And then the other stanzas as well. And, of course, the psalm is about God's word. That's the major focus of the psalm. And yet, as we read through the psalm, we find that David is talking to the Lord about his word. And there are many prayers within the psalm. And so we have both prayer and the word combined in one. And there's, of course, 176 verses and so this psalm is filled, and it's long, and it's really meant for God's people to relate to God according to his word. And I think we'll see even as we look at uh, verses 97 through 104, the blessings for those who meditate on God's word and who follow God's word as a source of wisdom. So let's start in verse 97. We'll read down through 104. David says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. 
How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And if we were to look at the bookends here from this stanza, we have love for God's law in verse 97 and hatred for every false way, which, of course, God's word teaches. So this has to do with our affections, our affections for God's will and his word, and then our hatred for what displeases him, our hatred for sin and every path that would be sinful. So as we began this psalm, we looked at that first verse and noted that this love for God's law produced a meditation in David's life. He wasn't speaking in a vain way or an empty way. This actually had an impact in his life. As he said, I love your law, and the evidence for that is it is his meditation, and not just once in a while, but all day long. And so his affection was demonstrated as he meditated on God's word all the day. And of course, that's as Psalm 1 teaches, it's a source of blessing for us when we meditate on God's law day and night. What does God do in the life of a person who meditates in his law day and night? That person, Psalm 1 says, is like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever that person does prospers. And that's obviously prospering in God's sight. We're not talking about a prosperity gospel, that it somehow is going to bring financial gain. But after David says, oh, how I love your law, and then he meditates on it, practically that's an evidence of it. He also extols the wisdom of God's word. He doesn't use the word wisdom uh, each time, but you can tell in verses 98 and 99 and 100 that he is wiser than his enemies He has more insight than all his teachers. And verse 100, he understands more than the aged or those who have lived a long time because of his relationship to God's word. He's not boasting in a sense of himself. He's saying it's God's word that has given me wisdom. So if you had to say, David, why do you love God's word? Well, in this stanza, it's because of the wisdom that it gives. It helps him in terms of his wisdom as he interacts with his enemies. It gives him more insight than any of his teachers ever gave to him as they taught him. And then verse 100, he says, I understand more than the aged. Greater understanding than those who have lived a long time and have learned because of experience. God's word taught him ahead of time, he didn't have to have the experience because God gave that knowledge and that understanding and that wisdom through his word. Now, if I just stop there tonight, there would be reason to read your Bible all week long and the rest of your life. And that's really something that we need to be reminded of, that we need to read our Bible if we can read need to meditate in the Bible. If we can think according to it, we will be blessed. We will receive wisdom. It is out of God's mouth that wisdom comes. This is a book of wisdom, 
a book that guides us through life. And if there's anything uh, that guides us and that builds us up and strengthens us and helps us to walk in love, I would say this in view of the testimony that was given tonight, it's the Word of God. And it's the Spirit of God within that works by the Word and helps us to walk in obedience to God. And so may the Lord help us to get into the book and to stay in the book. And I don't know where you're at tonight or what your interaction has been with the Bible, but what Michael testified to, if you have spent extended time in the Word, it's amazing what the Word does in your heart, whether it's peace that it gives or cleansing that it brings as you deal with things that you need to deal with. And praise the Lord that his word is true. We're not talking about something mystical or magical. We're talking about the power of God through his word to change us and to shape us. It guides us. It directs us in the right path. And as you look at verse 101, and we'll look at 101 through 104 tonight, that right path is the opposite of the evil way. Notice in verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. We have been reading from time to time in our family, Pilgrim's Progress. When you follow Pilgrim as he, as John Bunyan writes about Pilgrim on his way to the celestial city, he comes across paths at times that look promising, but they're off the path that he's supposed to be on. And they get him into trouble. He got off the path one time when he talked to worldly wise man, and he smarted for it. He was hurt because of it. And when he finally was confronted, there was a man called Evangelist who gave guidance to him and reminded him uh, the dangers of worldly wise man and also some wisdom about the right path. He said to Pilgrim, now there are three things in this man's counsel, that is worldly wise man's counsel, that you must utterly detest. First, his ability to turn you from the way you should go and get you sidetracked. The second is the way he works to portray the cross, talking about the cross of Jesus Christ as odious to you. And lastly, that he points you in the direction which leads to death. That's worldly wise man's way. If he points you in a direction, what's that direction end up in? If you go that way, you follow that way, it's the path to death Christian, as he speaks to evangelist, he says, sir, what do you think? Is there any hope? May I now go back to the way that leads to the wicked gate? Or will I be abandoned for what I've done and sent back to where I came from, riddled with shame? I'm sorry I ever listened to this man's counsel. May my sin be forgiven. Evangelist looked at him with serious expression, and he said, your sin is very great, for you've committed two evils. You abandoned the way that is good, and you chose to walk in forbidden paths. Yet the man at the gate will receive you, for he has good will for men. But be careful not to turn aside again. 
because if you do, you may perish altogether when his wrath is ignited. And then he quotes Psalm 2, verse 12. Do homage to the Son, or kiss the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And obviously, Bunyan was using an allegory to teach some things about the Christian life, but there are within this psalm, many references to the paths that we take, the path in life that we take. And in verse 101, David says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. So if I could put it this way, his purpose to keep God's word kept him from evil. Obviously, God kept him, but he purposed, verse 101, at the end of the verse, to keep God's word. And with that purpose, he had to restrain himself. There was discipline that was involved. So what this is teaching, in part, is the necessity of restraint in our lives. There is no evil in the way of the word. The way of the word, God's word, is always upright and righteous. But if I'm going to walk in that way, I have to restrain my feet from every evil path. That's what Pilgrim would have had to do. He would have had to say no to all these alternative paths and stay in the right path. And if you read God's word, especially Proverbs and sometimes Psalms as well, it talks about all the ways that we could walk in all the paths that we can follow. Turn away from the path of righteousness, and you can then walk in the way of sinners. Or it's also called the way of the wicked. It's the way of the foolish. Or, depending on the sin, it can specifically define the way. For instance, the way of violence the ways of darkness, those who are devious in their ways, and that has to do with the character of the person, but they walk in crooked paths. There is a way of an immoral or strange woman. There's a perverted way. There's the way of the fool, the way of the lazy. And there are many other ways, many other ways of life, many other paths that we can follow. And isn't it our tendency to walk in those ways? We're prone to go this and that and the other way. It's sort of like I used an illustration this morning of our puppy, Winnie. And if you ever take Winnie on a walk, what is guiding Winnie? Well, it's not usually me, right? I can be with her. I can be tethered to her with a leash, but I'm not guiding what she does. I'm restraining her constantly. And it's a puddle, and it's a mess on the road, and it's a pine cone, and it's a branch, and it's a paper bag or a plastic bag, or who knows what she's interested in. And I constantly have to pull her back because she would walk in all of those ways. And some of them, frankly, some of them would be bad for her. She decides to try to eat something she shouldn't eat. That could be bad. 
And what do I need to do? I need to restrain her. And we have had several different possible ways to restrain that puppy. She's got a strong will. But you know, in our hearts, because of our sinful hearts, we we may not seem that uncontrolled, but the reality is when we follow the sinful inclinations of our hearts, we go all sorts of different ways. We follow paths of sin. The temptation may come from without. It may also come from within our own hearts, and we start to walk in a path that is wicked and sinful. What directs our feet? What guides us? And if you would, just keep a finger here. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, verse 20. Let me start in verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The path that we follow, that we choose to follow, comes out of the desire of our hearts. Look at how he continues. He says, verse 24, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet. And all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. And just by way of application, are you turning from evil in your life? Or are you pursuing it? What path are you on? Turn, if you would, back to Psalm 119. One of the things that we see in verse 101 is that David had a purpose. And his purpose, given, of course, by God's word and by God, as he put faith in God and followed the teaching of his word, was to keep God's word. To follow God's word. So he had a goal. And if you don't have the goal of doing that, you don't have the purpose to do that, what's your tendency going to be? Your tendency is going to be to just follow whatever the inclination of your heart is at the time. And that's a danger. If you're going to keep God's word, that's your goal. You must restrain, keep in check, keep under control people in your heart that would lead your feet into a path of sin. So I just ask you tonight, is that your goal? Do you have a desire to keep and obey God's word? Now, where does that desire come from? Well, ultimately, it comes from God. 
We put our trust in God, saves us from our sin. He makes us a new creature in Christ Jesus. And our new creature status and our purpose is, by his grace and by the power of his spirit, is to keep, to guard his word. But obviously, we can come to different times in our life where we just forget or we fall into a path of sin and we forget that's really the goal. Is that your goal? Are you just trying to stay out of trouble from a public standpoint? Is it what people know about you? Charles Bridges, in his exposition of Psalm 119, said the professor, and he's talking about someone who only professes Christ but doesn't truly know Christ, is afraid of hell, the child of God, of sin. The one refrains from the outward act, the other seeks to be crucified to the love of sin. He's talking about fighting on the heart level. Observe not only the practice, but the motive that he might keep the word. Shall we not abhor that which is evil, that we might cleave to that which is good, abstaining from all appearance of evil? Lest unconsciously we should be drawn into the atmosphere of sin, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh, fearing the infection of sin worse than death. But how fearful the danger of self-deception, he says, what need to entreat the Lord to see if there be any wicked way in us. In other words, if I'm purposing not to sin, if I'm purposing to keep God's word, then I'm concerned not just with those outward actions that embarrass me, but I'm actually fighting sin on that heart level. Are you fighting sin in your heart? before it ever shows up in your life. John Newton, in his The Writer of Amazing Grace, had a time in his life when he said he lived a life of little to no restraint. He said, I had no business to employ my thoughts. My whole life, when awake, was a course of most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I've ever met ever since met so daring a blasphemer, not content with common oaths and imprecations, I daily invented new ones. That was his life. It was sin, sin, and more sin. No desire to please God, no goal to keep God's word, and there were no, no restraints. There was no discipline. But how much differently years later, as God, of course, got a hold of his heart and saved him by his grace, and he testified of the reality of the continued struggle with sin, but it was on the heart level. And I'm just going to read a portion of a letter that he wrote on January 4th, 1768, to a friend. He said, I hope the entrance of the new year will be blessed to you. This last year was a year of peculiar mercies, but alas, as to my part in it, I have little pleasure in the review. Alas, how much faintness and unfruitfulness has the Lord borne with from me. Indeed, I'm almost continually a burden to myself and find such a difference between what I seem to be in the pulpit, and he was a preacher by this time, and in public, and what I really feel myself to be before the Lord, that I'm often amazed and confounded. 
And was it not that the Lord had been, has been pleased in some measure to establish me in the knowledge of my justifying righteousness? And then he says, the unalterable security of his covenant of grace, he said, I would be ready to give all up. He says, I am kept at a great distance from the full possession of my privileges. But through mercy, the evils I feel are confined within myself. And he's acknowledging the reason that he hasn't sinned is because God is doing something. He is at work in his life. And then he says, the Lord keeps me from stumbling outwardly and does not allow Satan to distress me with those grievous temptations, which he has always had in readiness when permitted. I trust my hope is founded upon a rock and that he to whom I have been enabled to commit my soul will keep it to the end. And that's where our trust needs to be, even as we seek to restrain ourselves from evil. We need to trust in the Lord and seek his help. Amen. We can't just look to willpower. That's not the answer. Newton said, yet surely I'm a wonder to myself. And it is a wonderful thing when God is at work in our lives when he helps us to fight on the heart level? Are you struggling and fighting against sin? That's where the battle needs to take place. We do have, Jesus said it, we have wicked thoughts in our hearts. And those wicked thoughts are going to turn into actions unless we confess the wicked thoughts and deal with those and think right thoughts according to God's word. And we need to be careful not to just restrain the evil through our own willpower or think that we can do it that way. You need a Savior. You need Christ. We all need Christ. You need Christ in salvation from beginning to end. You need Christ, of course, in justification but you also need Christ in sanctification. And of course, we need him in glorification when he perfects us. But don't think that it's willpower. It's another thing that Charles Bridges warned against, and basically what he was talking about was making sure that when we think about sin, we look at it from the standpoint of the cross. And what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sin. That's how evil sin is, is sin is the reason that Jesus had to be crucified. If I see it just as a problem to be dealt with in my life or a habit that I want to quit, that's too little. That's not the right view of sin. This is sin that crucified my Lord, my sin, that brought about his death upon the cross. He says, oh, may I therefore seek to abide within a constant view of Calvary. Sin will live everywhere but under the cross of Jesus. Here it withers and dies. Here rises the spring of that holiness, contrition, and love, which refreshes and quickens the soul. Here let me live. Here let me die. The cross and Christ's death on the cross and the blood that he shed upon the cross because of sin. 
Do we hate sin? That really helps us get the right perspective. There used to be a hawk that would fly. I don't know if it was always the same one, but might have been the same one that would fly up to the cross on the top of the church, right across from Bob Jones University. And I remember looking up at that thing, and I thought, that's a good perspective. I mean, it was for the hawk. He caught a lot of squirrels, I'm sure. But from the standpoint of a Christian, to look at things from the standpoint of the cross. There we see our Lord, and we see him in his glory. Suffering, dying for us in our place. We see his love. We see the wrath of God. We see the evil of sin. And so, verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. Certainly, as God has saved us by his grace and paid the debt of our sins upon the cross, why would we do something other than desire to please him? May the Lord help us to keep his word. Notice as well, David, in addition to restraining his feet, his purpose to keep God's word in verse 101. In verse 102 is his testimony that he has not turned aside from God's ordinances because God has taught him. So here we have certainly the help of God as he grants understanding, not just understanding, but motivation to obey him. The Lord, by his instruction, has kept David, not perfectly. David, of course, was a sinner. But when he says here, I've not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me, he's saying, I've had the best of teachers. He's got more insight in verse 99 than all my teachers, except this teacher. This is the Lord, his teacher. And as the Lord has taught him, he has taught him in the right way. And he's given him the right motivation. He's helped him to walk in the path of obedience. That's his confession, David's confession. I think David is actually using, if we were to look at uh, the law, if you were to look at Deuteronomy, you'd see statements about not turning aside. Deuteronomy chapter 5 uses that language of not turning aside from the commandment that God had given Uh, He warns about the danger of turning aside into idolatry and the ruin that it would bring, Deuteronomy 9. He, as he gives guidance to the people to uh, obey him, and when they had a king to make sure that the king would take God's word and meditate in it, the purpose of the king taking the word of God and writing out a copy for himself is so that he would not turn aside and follow after idols. Deuteronomy 17. So I think David here is drawing at least some language from Deuteronomy, and there were blessings promised for those who did not turn aside from God's ordinances, his orders and directions for life, as we think about that word ordinances. Why has he not turned aside from those things? Because God had taught him. God had given him understanding. You know what it's like to have a good teacher, and they teach you what you need to know, they teach you the right way to do it, and they, as you follow their instruction, it works? Ever had that experience? Hope you have. 
Well, we're obviously talking about a spiritual level here, but I remember a time when I was enclosing a porch in our house back in our condo back in South Carolina. And as I went through the process of trying to figure out how I was going to do it, I did ask a couple of people to help. I asked someone to do the drywall work because I was not familiar enough to feel like I could do a good job and also asked someone to do the windows for me. But I thought the flooring, how difficult can flooring be? I mean, it's laminate, looks like it just kind of goes together. It's, it's a piece of cake, right? And I got, you know, I had tools. I had a saw to be able to cut it. I had a rubber mallet. I had tape measure. I needed all of that. What I didn't have, and I really didn't know that I needed in the process, if I had investigated, I probably would have found out sooner or later, but I had a friend who had done it before, and he was really good at what he did, and he handed me this little box right before I started. I thought, okay, uh, thanks for the box. You know, I, I didn't think much of the box, but inside that box was a tapping block and a pull bar. And you're smiling, Tom, that's right, because if you don't have those, what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> well... I learned from a teacher, and I still, even though I had those tools, uh, it took some more learning before I could actually do what I needed to do. But you know, God gives us everything we need and actually teaches us how to use it from his word. The word of God teaches us about life and godliness, and he created us. He knows what we need. And why don't we look to him? We need to look to him when we think about living the life. So you think about whatever it is in your life that you need to do, that you need to live in a godly way in this relationship, whether it's at work or the home or the church, whatever it may be, God's word gives guidance, gives wisdom. It's the way of wisdom. So are you being taught by God to live your Christian life and to live with your circumstances and what you're facing? You know, the Word of God is sufficient to give us a guide for all that we need to do. The great prayer when we read the pages of Scripture is, teach me, Lord. Not only give me the knowledge, but the understanding and the wisdom to live out what I need to do. And that, of course, is what God is doing for David. David says, I'm not turned aside. That suggests there's even motivation coming to David, where he is motivated. Not only does he know what's right, but he's motivated to keep on the right path because the Lord is giving him those motivations. Quickly, let's look at the last couple of verses here. 103. Here's another exclamation. Verse 97 had, oh, how I love your law, but now how sweet are your words to my taste. This is an exclamation of praise for the sweetness of God's word, and he compares it to honey. He says, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So he can't really tell us exactly, but he says, if you know what honey is, it's sweeter than that. I became familiar with some different kinds of honey recently. Tupelo honey is one of the sweetest. 
because of the ratio of fructose to glucose. And as I've tasted it, I don't know that I, I haven't gone through a taste test, but it is very sweet. And it has to do with the tree that the bees access. So they get the nectar. And so we think about that process. Of course, God designed all that, but he gave us an illustration that right in his word that we can understand, just a simple one. How sweet is God's word? Sweeter than honey. Sweeter than the honeycomb. That being said, you know, verse 103 is the testimony of a believer. God's word is not sweet to unbelievers. This is, one writer said, it is an acquired taste. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And David doesn't distinguish in the verse between the words of judgment and the words of blessing, the words of promise or the words of warning. He just said, how sweet are your words to my taste. Without that distinction, I think it suggests that really it's all of God's words. It's not just some of God's words. And when we rightly understand who God is, and as he says what he says, even those words of judgment are right and true, and while we might not use the word sweet, we would say that's good, that's pleasing. It meets our approval because we understand who God is. One writer said, oh, for a deep love for all that God has revealed or the Lord has revealed, whatever form it may take. All of his words are true. All of his judgments are right. We may have a natural distaste, but when God saves us by his grace and we read his word, we understand because of the Holy Spirit who lives within, we come to the place where we recognize this is truly good. We come to love it. So I just ask you, is God's word sweet to you? Have you acquired the taste for it because you've come to know God? And then obviously, if something is sweet, sweeter than honey, will you return to it? You know, the honey that you buy perhaps from time to time, that, that jar just or that little container just seems to disappear over time, whether it's me or someone else. They're just the reason that people keep on putting it on their bread. But what about God's word? Is that being in your life consumed and regularly interacted with? Is that what you're doing with God's word? Could you say that it is sweet to my taste? It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. This is David's testimony. It had become precious to him, good to him. Let's look at this last verse here. From your precepts, he says, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Not only does God give us an understanding of what sin is, he declares what sin is by his law, by his judgments, by his precepts, by his statutes, but he also gives us what our attitude should be towards sin. In the verse, therefore I hate every false way. You who love the Lord, he says in another place, in the Psalms, hate evil. Six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him, and he goes through a list of all these sins. There should be in our hearts a hatred, an intense dislike for what displeases God. 
How does that happen that we come to the place, verse 104, that we hate every false way? Those false ways that I follow, that I pursue, that I walk in, and of course hurt for it. Where, where, how can I get to the point where I actually hate those, and I turn from those, and I stay on the path? Where do I get that? I want that. And David's giving us the answer. It's an open secret. He says, from your precepts. From God's precepts, I get that. And of course, again, his Holy Spirit works in us and moves us, even in our affections, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. If you want to love God more, love the ways of God more, read his word. If you want to hate sin more, read his word. Meditate on his word. Not only see that he forbids it, but see the disastrous effects that sin brings into the lives of the people in the word of God. You can certainly see it in the world, but look in the word of God as you see sin unfolding in someone's life. We're looking at Joshua chapter 6 tonight, and you saw Joshua very specifically warn against covetousness and specify what they were not to take. So Achan knew well ahead, and would that he had listened. Maybe Achan was kicking rocks or whatever, but it doesn't seem that that was the case. It seems that he actually knew full well what he was doing. And he did not take the warning seriously. And what happened as that story unfolds is that not only does Achan get shamed before all of Israel, but he and all those who knew, I believe that's what happened with his family, all those who knew and all of that stuff got buried beneath a pile of stones because of where did it start? He saw something, and he coveted it. He wanted it. And God said, that's not for you. He didn't fight it on the heart level. He didn't restrain his feet from the evil way. He did not stay on the right path, and instead he turned away from those ordinances of God. He did not regard God's word as sweet. Instead, what he found to be sweet was the hopes that somehow that garment and that wealth, that money would have done something for him. And of course, it ended in destruction. As you read God's word, not only do his precepts give us understanding, but certainly the stories when sin unfolds in someone's life and it becomes a disaster, warn us not to walk in those ways. God's word is a grace for us every single day as we pursue it. It helps us. And I just want to close with something that Charles Bridges said as he was looking at this psalm. And it just really draws our attention to our own relationship to the word of God. He says, what is our daily use of the word of God? Are we satisfied with a slight looking or do we seek an intimate acquaintance with it? Is its influence an ever 
present, excuse me, is its influence ever present and ever practical? Do we prize it as a welcome guest? Is it our delightful companion and guide? Oh, meditate in this blessed book. Eat the word when you have found it. And it will be to you the joy and rejoicing of your heart. The name of Jesus, its great subject, will be more precious. Your love will be inflamed. Your perseverance established. And your heart enlivened in the spirit of praise. Thus bringing your mind into close and continual contact with the testimonies of God and pressing out the sweetness from the precious volume, it will drop as from the honeycomb. Daily comfort and refreshment upon your heart. We heard testimony tonight of the comfort and refreshment of the word. You can have that every single day. Every day. Why do we neglect God's word? So foolish. May the Lord help us not to neglect it, but to make much of it. I hope that even in our time today, through our time in the word, the Lord, by his grace, has made much of it as we've read it today, as we've spent time in it today. But there's tomorrow. And there's the next day. Let's get in the word and seek the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your precious word. And we thank you for your sweet word, the sweet wisdom of the word for us. Lord, help us not to neglect it. And as we read its pages, help us to see Jesus. And help us to see you for who you truly are. Give us wisdom, we pray, and understanding. Give us motivation to walk in the path of life. And Lord, we do ask that we would grow more and more to love your word, that we'd grow more and more to hate every false way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnal and turn to number 412.